Amen. Um, good morning, Calvary. Good morning to our podcast listeners as well. We're doing a, a series called Neon, Hot Topics and Bold Answers, and today's topic is obviously on divorce. And right from the beginning, I just want to throw this out there. I know in this room there are people all over the map, and what I want you to hear, the preeminent theme of what we're going for today is this idea of restoration. Uh, restoration doesn't always mean getting back with your spouse from before. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you are to be restored in your relationship with God. And so we're going to unpack some things that may be uncomfortable for a little bit, and that's okay. But I want you to hear the point, and, and at the end of this is the idea of restoration and what the Bible truly says about marriage. But here's the thing. In order to talk about restoration, we have to talk about what the ideal is first. Because if something is to be restored and we don't know what's to be restored to, we can't restore it, right? So I want to start by unpacking the idea of what is marriage. In Genesis 2, 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. And I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at his place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. For she was taken from man, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. This idea of one flesh is where we get the idea of marriage. Marriage at its basic core is a union, biblically, between a man and a woman that allows them to become intimate. It allows them to become one flesh. It is intimacy at its highest level. It is knowing all there is to know about each other, physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And we believe that this should be a lasting relationship, that one that lasts for the rest of your life. The problem is we don't always know how to unpack that. We don't always know what it looks like because ultimately marriage is more than just intimacy. The purpose, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's first talk about reasons why people in the United States get married. Here's reasons I've had people say to me, I want to get married out of companionship. I don't want to, my favorite one is a fear of being alone. I don't want to be alone. So you'll do, right? Stick with me. The idea of sex the idea of procreation. In other words, I want to have a, a child. I need somebody to help me do that. Yeah, you'll do. That's another great excuse. Uh, but the next natural step, I'm 23. Everyone's asking when I'm going to get married to get mom off my back. I'm going to get married, right? That's always wonderful. Pregnant. I'm pregnant. We're supposed to get married now. And then another one I didn't include up there is I feel like I love you. Well, what does that even mean? I don't even know. Uh, so those are some of the reasons why People have told me they get married, but there are some biblical reasons for marriage. Let's look at these. The biblical reasons for marriage is you are to have a partner in ministry and mission. In Genesis, when he was talking about that, he said, Adam, you are to take care of the garden. You are to, to tend these things. You are to look after and you are to worship me. And a spouse is designed to help you partner in the mission. What's the mission of Calvary? Followers making followers of Jesus. This is ultimately what marriage is about, having a partner helping us to create followers that make followers of Jesus. And one way we do that sometimes is through procreation. Oh, I joke around all the time when we have a baby dedication that this church takes followers, making followers literally. But that actually is one of the commands, be fruitful, multiply. However, that is not the definition of what a biblical marriage means. Because if you can't have kids or if, if kids don't ever happen, it's, it's, that's not saying that your marriage is not good. We understand that, right? 
Ultimately, it's about the partner in ministry, which is an act of worship. Marriage is an act of worship when it's practiced well. Why? Because it's from Genesis to Revelation, God describes marriage as this picture that is to represent our relationship with Him. He describes us as the bride. The church is the bride and and Jesus is the bridegroom. And so we're to see this idea of unconditional love, this idea of of really living a life of worship, this idea of my life is going to be spent in helping you to see more of Jesus. Do you think our marriages would look better? The ideal of getting married someday to find the person who would help us to accomplish that mission? Let me help you see more of Jesus. Jesus. The reality is that doesn't happen a lot. But the primary focus of a marriage must be kingdom focused. Taking the story of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that he loves you and and that he cares for you and that he dies for you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past entails, that God right now, son or daughter, he looks down into your life and he says, I love you. But here's the reality, and I, I got this. There's a book you need to read. It's called The Storm-Tossed Family by um, Russell Moore. It's not an easy read, but it's a great read. And, and I want you to, this is a summary of it. Your view of God will determine your view of marriage. So let me read that sentence again. Your view of God will determine your view of marriage. If your view of God is that God is supposed to be there for your needs, for your benefit, and that you, then that will be your view of your spouse. However, if your view of God is that your life belongs to him and that you give yourself completely to him, then that is what your practice will be in marriage. Did you get it? If I got married because I want you to fulfill my ideas, if I get married hoping that you will meet all my needs, then you're going to be greatly disappointed, just like if you came to God as an adult version of Santa Claus. I want you to give me all these things. I want blessings. I want you are to be here to meet my needs. That's not love. That's greed. But when you love someone, you're willing to pour yourself out. When you're willing to give yourself away. When you're willing to be encapsulated in the ideal of everything in me is to represent a relationship that is unconditional, that, that is unparalleled, that is all-giving and all-consuming, then you'll understand how to love your spouse. This is what it means to be followers who make followers. This is also why God grieves so much over divorce. It is a reflection of our our view on Him. So why does divorce happen? It does. Because of sin. It may not be your sin. Although we'll come back to that in a minute. Divorce is never one person's fault. It's always got a little of our fault because we're sinners. But the problem is the church hasn't really known how to deal with divorce very well. And usually we find one of two extremes. We find the church that practices divorce as the great scarlet letter with the, having to walk around with the great D for the rest of your life. I have been divorced. If you don't know scarlet letter, maybe you should read a little more. But it's this old book that talks about how you're labeled and you can't escape the label and then you have to carry this for the rest of your life and, oh, I'm, I'm not loved by God because I'm divorced. And I want you to hear right now that's a lie. In fact, I, I find that Jesus always looks down at, at the people that the world says is the least of them and he says, you think you're the least of them? They're the least of them because they're judging you. I love you. 
I, I care for you, and, and I want you to hear, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God deeply loves you. And the other side is the church sometimes carries the other extreme where divorce is no big deal. It just happens, and I, I got to tell you that that's not true either, because if marriage is supposed to represent our relationship with God, then divorce is a big deal. We shouldn't act like it's not. So then how should the church handle divorce? Well, maybe we should look instead of what Daniel says, what Jesus says. In Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Why am I reading these first two verses? Because I want you to see something very important. Jesus wasn't gunning to talk about divorce in this moment. He was going around doing the mission of pointing people to God the Father and himself, who is God the Son, Jesus. He was making followers who make followers of Jesus when the topic came up. Does that make sense? Some Pharisees approached him to test him. When they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, why would the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, test Jesus with this question? You want to know why? Because divorce was a big deal back then. They didn't know how to handle it any more than the church does today. Isn't that comforting to know the problems that 2,000 years ago are still the problems of today? So how did Jesus respond? Because he knew that no matter how he responded, this is what the Pharisees were hoping when they asked him, that no matter how he responded, somebody would be mad. No matter how he responded, somebody was going to be uncomfortable. Somebody would pick up a stone, that they would no longer think he's all that great, that they would no longer want to follow him. They, they were counting on his answer being so controversial that it would split everybody. And here's what he said. Haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The becoming of one, the two becoming one flesh, is both a literal picture and a great picture of truth. Uh, to go back to Trevor's sermon, it's more than just a piece of cake. If you didn't hear last week, that would make no sense, okay? It's more than just a physical action. It is an all-accompanying reality that, well, in fact, the idea there is glue. That when they're joined together, they are glued together. And I'm not talking Elmer's glue here. You know, Elmer's glue, you could just scrape it off your fingers. This is like super glue. I can't, I can't undo my fingers. That's what it means to be married. And so what he's saying is this is a super important understanding that if you're looking for someone to marry someday, you need to understand you're supposed to be glued together. If you're married to them, you're supposed to be glued and I need you to understand that's an important thing. And the reason we don't understand this is because a lot of times we've represented this idea of coming into marriage not as a sacrament. And what I mean by a sacrament is we practice two sacraments here. These are holy representations of our, our life and our relationship with God. We do two of them here. One is the baptism, which we had a baptism in the last service, where the person was dead and now they are alive. And it represents an eternal life with Christ. 
A marriage is another sacrament that we practice in that, that you are to represent, that you are going to represent the life living following Jesus from now into eternity. How cool is that? And so when we understand that and, and this belief, we could argue over the definition of the word sacrament, by the way. I understand that. I'm not saying, I'm going to go there. Ask me later if you have problems with that. But the idea here of what we're really saying is that our life is meant to help other people see the power of Jesus. We don't understand what it means to follow Jesus because we haven't really understood what it means to love like he loved us. Marriage is supposed to be a covenant not a contract. So what's the difference? Well, a contract is established to make sure everyone fulfills his or her duties. So somebody comes up here and they say, I'm saying a, a wedding ceremony. I'm saying um, what I believe. And, I, and I'm standing up in front of the church and, I, and I'm saying, this is what I believe. And uh, I'm going to, but what we're really doing sometimes is going, I promise to do this as long as you do your part. Right? A person who understands that what really this is about is it's not saying, I promise to do this as long as you do your part. A covenant is so much deeper than that. A covenant says, I'm going to do this before God and everyone around me. I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. A contract has a start and an end date. And if you don't fulfill the contract, I'm going to sue you. Which, by the way, when you actually file for divorce, what are you doing? You are suing for divorce. You're saying you violated the contract. A covenant, however, does not end short of death. A contract is conditional. A covenant is unconditional. Why is this so important? Because God's love is unconditional for us. It doesn't start. It doesn't end. And when we begin to see this, when we begin to saying, okay, how can I possibly do this for someone? How can I possibly live for them no matter what? How can I possibly go all in and, and be there for them and do this, all this? You can't except for out of an understanding of what God has done for you. So God's love for us is the basis on how we are able to love, how we are based to understand the covenant, and we see that God's love is not based on what we do. Ephesians 2.8, it is a gift of God. It is now through eternity, John 3.16-17, through 17, is unconditional that while we were sinners, He died for us. And here's the cool part. He died for us despite who we knew we would be. And so when God asks us to live our marriage out, He's not saying husbands, like He says in Ephesians 5, be willing to lay down your life as long as she's making you happy. As long as she's fulfilling her end of the, the bargain, if a, if a burglar wakes in, then you lay down your life for her. No, it's like, I'm going to lay down my life for her because Christ showed me what it means to lay down his life for me. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes to sacrifice, to go to the nth degree, to help you see Jesus' love. Isn't that cool? And this is the message of the gospel. If you've never seen the love of Jesus, I hope you will. I hope you'll understand how he loves you. So then, 
if this is true, the scholars of the day wanted to know why God allowed divorce in the Old Testament, Matthew 19, 7-10. Why then, they said, did Moses, the Old Testament kingpin, command us to give divorces and send us to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. Ouch. In other words, it's a covenant of love and you're not in the love relationship. You're not following me. You're not on mission. You haven't done it for a while. So I'm kind of acknowledging the way you're already living. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The sexual immorality there is, is really comes from the, the Greek word pornea, which is where we get the word porn, but it's, it's more even so than porn. It's literally sexual deviation. It's the idea of repeated sexual deviation. So Jesus permits divorce if sexual deviation is persistent and unrepentant in marriage. In other words, it looks like this. The couple comes to my office and the guy says, yeah, I'm married. She has to marry me. That's what Jesus says. But I'm going to still sleep around with a bunch of other women. No, that's sexual deviation. You can't be one with her and four other women or one other woman. And it, it takes two to tangle, ladies. It can go the other way, right? A lot of times we just throw the guys under the bus because it's easier. But the reality is, no, it's, and it's not just emotional. It's, it's physical. It's intellectual. It's all of these, these intimacies that, that we create. If there's unrepentant sexual deviation, then it's permitted. Why would he allow that? Because you're no longer one. You're not in the covenant. The covenant's broken. So the question then gets asked a lot of times is, when do I know I can get the divorce? (laughs) And what I would say is, that is the wrong question. And can I, I just beg you, please don't ever ask me or Reggie when you can get a divorce. That, that is a big, huge sign that you're not understanding the picture of what the gospel is about. But let me give you questions. There are times when divorce is permitted. So let me give you the appropriate questions of how I know that the covenant has not worked, how we're not understanding the gospel by asking these four questions. When my spouse has abandoned the covenant of marriage, abandoned is not done a little thing wrong. Like, he shamed me. No, abandon is, I have foregone at all helping you see the mission of what I'm about, which is pointing people to Jesus. I'm not loving you. I'm, it's no longer condition. I'm not caring. I, I, I am in here in body, but I'm not here in spirit. I may not even be here in body. I, I'm, I'm looking towards other women. I'm doing these things. There's this sexual deviation. There's no intimacy. There's nothing, and I have abandoned it, and I might be living in the same house with you, but I am no longer in this marriage. If your spouse is in that place, then that's a starting point. Let me throw one other thing. I, I have to be very careful here, okay? Um... This is one of those things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say, and I would love to point out a scripture, but every single scholar that I respect has the same unifying voice on this. If you're in an abusive situation, don't live in the house. Get out of the house. Abusive isn't like he called me fat, and I don't mean that as a joke. I just mean that as a literal statement. Abusive is 
He's beating you. And by the way, occasionally it does work the other way. I've had, I could tell you stories. But the reason that's an abandonment, the reason that's sexual deviation is because you are diminishing and destroying something that was made in the image of God. And restoration can still happen, but get out of the house. We'll help you. We'll walk you through it. But don't stay there. Why? Because a lot of times the second area uh, that you see in the questions asked considering the doors, is my spouse unrepentant in word and in action? <laughs> and abuse people, and, and forget the abuse. It, maybe it's the sexual deviation. Maybe it's whatever. They sit there and they go, I'm really sorry. And the next day they're going back to the same thing. If there's a repeated pattern of, I'm really sorry, take me back. I'm really sorry, take me back. I'm really... They're unrepentant. They're saying what they think you want to say so that you won't leave. Third, and here's where we really start shifting it back towards you, and which is super important. Have I done everything I can to reconcile? Have I gone through the counseling, through the help? Have I taken the nexus, next steps that I need to? It's, it's kind of like going around when you see the, 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 the light on in your car. You like, you know, the oil light comes on and then you keep driving it for another thousand miles, two thousand miles and all of a sudden the engine locks up and you sit there and you go, I can't believe the engine locked up. I, I don't know why you ignored the sign. And the engine locked up because you didn't actually take the heed of the warning sign. Have I done everything I can to reconcile? Have I gone to counseling? Have I sought help? Have I sought wisdom? Don't wait till the engine locks up. When the signs come up, get help. Own your part. Uh, newsflash. Even if a person is cheating, the marriage is not div- uh, leading to a divorce because one person is at 100% at fault. You know how I know? Because every one of us is a sinner. And every single person who's been married, testify, Daniel Barry's going to testify and scream this from the mountain, has not been a great spouse. There are moments where I am not a good spouse. Hopefully very few times. But it does happen. I, there are moments in my life when I'm not the man I need to be. And so the reality is, I know that there's problems, and there's problems in all of us, and so we have to own your part. And then ask yourself, are your motives pure? Because a lot of times people just want to run. Why do we want to run? Because we think it's easier to leave behind instead of working through what we actually have to work through. But don't you think that working through is actually better? Because you can't ever outrun your story. Did you get that? There is no such thing as starting a brand new life with no back consequences. That does not exist. But ignoring the past does not make your present any better. Working through the past and coming to the place where the redemption, the restoration happens is where we ultimately find joy. It's where we find peace. So what if I just don't want to be married to him or her anymore? 1 Corinthians 7, 10, or 11. In other words, they're not doing sexual deviation. They're not doing anything bad. What, what should I do about that? To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is the Lord's command. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. In other words, if there's no reason to divorce and you just say, I don't want to be married to you, all right, don't get married again. 
Now, why would a loving God do that? Does he want me to be alone? No, because you didn't understand the purpose of marriage at the beginning. You're getting divorced for selfish reasons. Why would you remarry? But for selfish reasons. So, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but there's not all lostness there. There's hope and joy here. Because God doesn't abandon you. And so that's what I would say, don't abandon him. What about if someone is married to an unbeliever? 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, but I, not the Lord. Now this is where Paul's giving his opinion. says, to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Here's Paul saying, guess what? Our mission is followers making followers of Jesus. Go out and do that, right? And so if your spouse doesn't follow Jesus, guess what you're living with your mission field? Why would you sit there and go, I'm not going to live with the mission field? Now, if they leave, it's understanding why they leave. Why? Because you're not on the same page for the mission. Does that make sense? So it's okay. But if you're united in the mission, stay married. If you at all possibly can, you need to find a way to reconcile and work through that and and then to understand if they are not believers, then show them Jesus. Pray for them. Believe in the power of what that is. Now, here's the caution. If you aren't married, marry someone who is believing. Understand that life isn't about wearing the white dress and walking down and acting like it's your day. And groups go, what about me? It's still her day. But the problem is we don't understand what that is. It's not about the day. It's about a life lived together in union, helping people find Jesus. Don't get married for the white dress. You get married because the spouse will point you to Jesus. Do you understand? So what's next? Because we're all in different situations. How do I? What's next if my marriage is bad and on the, the edge of divorce? Seek help. Quickly. Show grace and mercy. Why? Because God has shown you grace and mercy. Aren't you glad? I mean, seriously, aren't you glad? So you know that a lot of times the only way I'm able to show my wife grace is to realize that she probably has to show me more grace than I show her. And God has shown me a whole lot more grace because God doesn't need grace, he's God. And God still loves me despite, you know, love unconditionally. You want to change your marriage? Say, I'm going to love you. No matter what you do, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. No, don't say that. <laughs> that would not help. Say, I am going to love you. And when he or she blows her top, just smile and say, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's all you need to know. We'll fix the problems when we calm down, but right now I just want you to know I love you. Pray for and with your spouse. Do you know that the the church has almost the same divorce rate outside the church as it does inside the church with one exception. 
Statistics say if you pray with your spouse every single day, there's a 90% chance you will not get divorced. 90% chance you won't. You know why? Stay mad at somebody that you're praying with. So, men, let me just give you this challenge because we're emotionally inept at times. Grab her hand and pray. And when you don't know to pray, here's what you pray. God, I don't really know what to say, but Daniel told me to pray, so would you show me what to pray? And start right there, and your wife will think, he's trying, I love it. (laughs) He's emotionally void, but he's trying. (laughs) And take the step, and wives, it's okay to say, would you pray? And it's okay to pray too. Let me pray over you. Prayer unites us. And then remember the mission of helping people make followers who make followers of Jesus. Because restoration is possible. Then what's next if I've been divorced? What do I do with that of the past? I'm going to say this with fear and trepidation, but repent. But he, if you start with but he, or if you start with but she, that's the surest sign you need to repent. Because why? Because there is part of this problem that is yours. And repentance lowers our position of posture into humility. And humility allows the outpouring of God's love to overwhelm us. You can't apologize for what they did. He or she may have been rude, may have been a jerk, may have done all these things. But the reality is you can repent for your part. And then allow healing. Healing sometimes hurts. When they cut you open, it hurts. But the master surgeon wants to heal you which ultimately allows you to be restored and to get back on mission. I don't know how to get on mission. What are you talking? Can can God still use me? Absolutely, God can still use you. You know how I know John 4? Jesus approached this woman at the well, and she's like, hey, nobody wants to talk to me. And he's like, I'll talk to you. And he's like, why would you talk to me? No one talks to me. And he goes, in fact, I know a lot of people talk to you. The five husbands you've been married to and the man you live with now, all have talked to you, right? Like, how did you know that? And he goes, because I am God and I love you. You need me. And the thing you've been looking for in that relationship, you've been trying to find it in that relationship, will never satisfy you, but I will satisfy you. And she was like, this is awesome. I can't wait to keep this to myself. God loves me despite the fact that I've been divorced five times and living with the man. I'm going to keep it to myself. And I, No, she went running, right? And she gathered everybody that she could gather, and she brought them back and said, here, listen to what he has to say. And let me just tell you, a church broke out that day because God loves to use a broken story that has been restored to help other people see how awesome and how great and how magnanimous his love is. God loves to use the broken because they know they need him so you're not done on mission but you got to be healed here's the other part of the story is you have to come to the understanding that you truly believe the gospel it has to be all in. You want to know why marriage is failed? Because we don't go all in with this deep understanding that God loves me right where I am. That, that his compassion and his care, that his, he really does love me for who I am. And I don't have to perform that God loves me unconditionally in that moment. And if you believe that and receive it, then all of a sudden you have something to give. 
And so when Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room, he practiced something called communion, the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, I misspoke earlier. This is the second of the sacraments. Marriage is important, but it's not, well, it's another story. But when he gathered with the disciples in the upper room, he took what was there. And he reminded them of why he came. And so today, we're going to have the deacons pass this out. And during this time, I want you to, to realize God's love for you. That there was someone who showed you what true unconditional love is. And you're never going to find it in that guy or that girl that you're trying to find your peace in. But guess what? When you find it in Jesus, that guy or that girl is going to help you be on mission and will actually bring you together. Because two people on a mission are joined together. Okay? If you're single... Don't envy being married. Marriage has problems. Be happy and content being single and be on mission. And if God brings you together, so be it. Amen? But in this process, as we do this, I want you to realize God's love for you. So as you come, as the deacons come now and they, they take these um, plates, we're going to pass them, do it a little different. You can come on up. We're going to pass them. And what you're going to do is you're going to take one up and then and together in unison in a little bit, we're going to take a little bit of the cracker or the cereal, whatever is in the bottom of your cup and the juice to remind us of what God has done for us. But as you hold this and as the, the, the trays are passed, I want you to remember how good our God is.